Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you to those places where you have those mastermind meetings and aha moments that can change your trajectory or at least bring you a little bit closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. I'm coming to you today from a combination of the living room and the balcony of my sumptuous apartment here in Las Vegas, Nevada, known to some as the hottest city in America. And we are going to be taking a journey down the path to $100 million. Hey. I could use $100 million. Could you use $100 million? I bet you could use $100 million. I could. So what does that journey look like? And how can you make $100 million from a non-traditional background? Well, our guest today has an interesting spin on this, and I'm so excited to speak with her. Her name is uh, Emmy Sobieski. She is the author of $100 Million Careers, is currently COO of Performative Speaking, and CEO of, COO and co-founder of Competitive Storytelling, Inc., both of which help founders with world-class ideas share their stories to change the world. Oh, joy, it's story time. Emmy Sobieski, come on in. The weather's fine. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so I read off your official bio. Very impressive stuff. Not sure I'm worthy to be in your presence, and this is my show, uh, especially since we're talking about $100 million as your baseline. So what we like to do here, and you've given us some points on – reaching $100 million. Boy, I tell you, that sounds so exciting. What we want to do before we get into some of what you have to share with us is tell us a bit in your own words about your journey. Something about it that's helped bring you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Yeah, so so it's it's kind of a interesting an interesting not direct path as i think most people have i think i think when you look at someone and they've already been successful you think oh wow they just went to the best schools and everything went great and um i did not and and things didn't go straight up and to the right what happened was i started investing well actually my dad and i we lived in a nice neighborhood but uh, aluminum cans actually were you could recycle them for 25 cents a can that's how old i am and wow. uh, so so we were going through uh, all our neighbors garbage every night on our evening walks and collecting aluminum cans so by the time i was 16 i had 1800 dollars just from collecting and recycling aluminum cans, a, a few kind of birthday gifts, but mostly it was the aluminum cans. And my dad said, now you're 16, you can open a stock market account and you should start investing in stocks. And he gave me four to pick from and kind of told me the stories about them and I read up on them. And um, and I picked MG, I picked actually MGM theaters and that got sorry united artists united artists theaters yeah. and that got bought out four months later and i made four times on my money in in like four months i thought well this is this is good yeah <laughs> so then i had seventy five hundred dollars and my dad gave me four other stocks that i could look at and i i took a look and and one of them though was a friend of his and he said you know this this guy has figured out how to be profitable as a healthcare organization as an as an hmo as a healthcare services organization and serve Medicare and Medi-Cal patients profitably, and nobody else has figured this out. And I thought that sounded super interesting. So I invested in that. It was a tiny little company, and it grew up to be FHP, um, which is a very large, now a very large um, HMO. Yeah. And so, you know, but time went by, it went up a lot. And I thought, you know, I probably made the money that I want to make in this. And my dad had a friend that he was on the board of directors with this guy. And this guy's son 
just joined this new tech company and it was called Novell and it was the first software company to let computers that were in an office talk to each other. This is before Cisco, before networking. This was like the first idea that computers could talk to each other. And I thought that sounded super cool. So I sold my FHP. Now my FHP was a 4X. So my Effectively, it was I was around thirty thousand dollars, thirty two thousand dollars, right? Because <laughs> I put everything from the seventy five hundred into the FHP, and I put it in Novell, and that thing just went up and up and up, and so that went up ten x. So I'm a sophomore in college with three hundred twenty thousand dollars to my name, right? So Dang. I mean. So I get this big, you know, I think, well, this is really fun and it's so easy and I can go partying and I don't really have to do anything. And, you know, I could just let my dad run it. You know, this, this stuff just goes up, right? It's so easy. And, um, and then my mother passed away, my dad, so that, that I inherited another 200,000. So now I have half a million dollars and I'm kind of like, you know, a year out of college, um, and uh, or a couple of years out of college and and my dad invested it in this one biotech company. And then we had a bio, the basic biotech crash and uh-huh. he had invested it and the thing started going down. And so he's borrowing, borrowing, you know, on the margin, you know, he's taking out debt to get more of this stock and it keeps going down and he keeps buying more. So the net of it is by 1992, so a couple of years out of college, I had negative 30. It went down so fast they couldn't even sell the stock to pay off the debt. So I had negative $30,000. I went from half a million dollars to negative 30,000. In and, college, that's a bad time. Well, no, this is after college. This is a couple oh, okay. of years after college. Um, and so I entered grad school. I was entering grad school with negative 30,000 in debt at the at the at at a brokerage house. And I had a horse that I thought I could sell for 30,000. So I quickly sold them for 30,000. And I went to the head of the brokerage firm who happened to be a fraternity brother of my dad. So I, you know, I think he just would have done this, whether he, you know, I'm sure he kind of backfilled this, but, um, but I just went to him and said, Hey, can I, I know that your brokerage only allows 30% debt, you know, like, like if you had a house, you would have to have 70% equity, 30% debt, right? Right. But the stock exchange allows 50-50. So will you let me trade? If I bring the 30,000 cash from my horse, will you let me just, instead of just wiping me out and paying off the debt, will you let me trade on it? And he said, sure. And I think, you know, he's living in an $80 million house. I think the 30,000, like, it didn't even mean anything. So, I then traded that when I was in school and it happened to be, you know, during my MBA and that happened to be 1992 where coming out of the recession, I was trading small cap tech, probably more lucky than smart, but, um, but basically small cap tech explodes coming out of recessions because it's the one that people think are, you know, could die, you know, the companies could all go under because they're losing money. And then all of a sudden it's like, they're going to survive and they're going to grow fast. And so Uh then they just go up a lot. So turned the 60 into 120, paid off the 30. And my girlfriend said, you know, that people would pay you to do that. And uh, and so I was like, oh, that's cool. It's like playing Pac-Man. And five years later, I was running the number one fund in the world. Um, yeah. And then from there, went to run a hedge fund and ran billions of dollars. And at some point, I... Um, after 25 years as an institutional investor, I decided to switch over and become an entrepreneur. And so I've uh, worked in various Web3 companies and various startups, and now I'm at competitive storytelling. So I've kind of seen both, like how do you get in and grow a company? And then how do you pick a company and make someone a lot of money, like pick pick the right investments to make a lot of money? So that's, that's my background. Wow. And that is quite a quite a background uh going into college with that type of money you know it's uh it's interesting the path that you took and you started with investments now for what it was worth i really wanted to make money when i was growing up except that my family chose to live so far out in the sticks it made hickville look like a metropolis <laughs> like I want, I, like I wanted to start i wanted to start a grass cutting business and the only thing i could get was my own parents yard my 
grandfather's yard next door, which he would then run over with his riding lawnmower the day before I was planning to do it and mess everything up anyway. And uh, and I in the in the trailer park a mile up the road, I found one person. So I'd push my little red. Uh, uh, lawnmower up that road that mile up to that trailer park and I'd uh, cut that little piece of land man when I when I hit 16 I couldn't wait to get a driver's license so I could get a job because I knew I'd have to travel in order to do that uh, wow that's you know, quite a story well it's it it it, it pales uh, it pales in comparison to six figures when you're in college I can tell you that much now Here's something I've noticed when I look at successful people that I've either encountered personally, uh, particularly of those who have what's known as the rags to riches story, who came from not a lot to create a lot. And what I noticed they all had in common was they held down multiple jobs while in college, sometimes three or four part-time jobs simultaneously, in addition to their studies, in addition to their extracurricular activities, whether they were uh, playing baseball, playing football, being a cheerleader, what have you. And I remember my experience, uh, people stripping over each other to be first in line to discourage me from having a job that I should enjoy. Well, I don't think I enjoyed that much because I uh, always felt like I had to measure every single dollar I spent. Like, uh, I mean, this day and age, if I want to go get myself a soda pop, I just go to a machine and put six quarters in. And I got one back in those days. I had to think about the impacts I would have on my week. Now to me, how are you supposed to get the most out of college? If you're worrying about buying a can of pop. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. For some folks, uh, they can start with investing like you say you did. Uh, for some folks, it starts with having a job like I say I did. And for some folks, it's uh, maybe a combination of the two or it could be any number of factors. But I think that a lot of it goes back to and this is why people may be tuning in right now and thinking the path to one hundred million dollars. Are you kidding me? Is this some sort of marketing gimmick? Is this some sort of uh pitch to sell a book what is this and no no i've looked into this this is very real but yeah, people you know, have the... a hard time believing it because of the programming that we get particularly when we're growing up that wealth is bad and unattainable to the average person i just want to get your thoughts on that so there's twenty five thousand self-made households in the u.s worth over a hundred million okay and the thing is a lot of them know about these paths because they grew up in Silicon Valley or they grew up in New York City. And uh -huh. what I've what I've seen so so my own personal experience, I have several mentees who were immigrants, first time, you know, literally first generation college students or they couldn't even afford college so went to community college and then went to the second two years in state state college, worked uh -huh. their whole way through it. And all of those that I just mentioned, those three are already multimillionaires by the age of 30. And then you basically, you can go on my website and see, and you can compound that as long as you kind of have a couple million by the age 30, it's not, you know, then you just need to compound that at a reasonable rate to eight, 10%. And you will, you will have a hundred million dollars. I mean, it's, 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 Simple, but not easy. It's one of those things. And so that's what I noticed. And then I also noticed that a couple of my friends took similar paths in terms of management consulting to starting up a company to being a board director or investment banking to being becoming a board director, various paths that that a lot of non people with non-traditional backgrounds or maybe they're not silicon valley or new york city aren't even aware that that you should be building your career in a way that makes you an attractive board member later because you can get so much equity and people you know you're basically getting paid for other people to do work <laughs> yeah. um so 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 but my friends that did those paths just kind of sail. I mean, they worked hard for sure, but they sailed through to the, you know, a couple million dollars by the age of 30 and then a hundred million by the age of 50. And so it is, you know, it's 25,000 households. Why can't it be you? Why can't it be me? That's really what uh -huh. my point is. And, and 
when I went to write the book, it was because I'd written a course on investing and I talked about kind of the five careers and that was private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, startup and board director. And that piece of my investing course got the best feedback. And so I thought, well, I should write a book about this and kind of flush this out a little. And so I actually wrote the whole book. And then I started thinking about my mentees, my friends that I was referring to in the book. And I refer to Bill Gurley. I refer to Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and talking about the whole process of making $100 million. And I thought, wait a minute. I mean, $100 million is actually lowballing it. Bill yeah. Gurley's worth $7 billion. Bill Gates is worth 110 billion. Elon's worth 187 billion. So today, you know, that's yeah. Because, today, because, because I, just, it, I just googled it today. Yeah, because it, it today his number changes about every day. And uh, what I found interesting about that is his fearlessness. Uh, he takes a lot of risks. I remember a story you told when he cashed out of PayPal. I think he got something like 20 million or something along those lines. So he divided all that money between three companies and then hit up his buddy to borrow money for rent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So there's a process I talk about, which is the three Bs. You break in, you build equity, and you break out. So you break into investment banking or management consulting, and later you break into venture capital or you break into hedge funds or you break into a top startup. You got to break in first. And then you got to make sure that a big chunk of your money, not at the very beginning, because you need money for food and rent, um, you know, unless you have friends you can borrow from like Elon, but I don't, yeah. I don't recommend that. But as you go, get a higher and higher percentage of your pay from equity and not from, not from uh, salary. And, and then you have to realize that the, your most valuable commodity is your time because you'll never get that minute back. You'll never get that hour back. And so whatever company you're working at, that has to be a company that you would invest 100% of your money in, that you believe in that company more than anything else. Otherwise, try to get yourself in the place that you really believe in. That's build equity. And honestly, Bill Gurley got to $7 billion just from those first two. He broke into benchmark. He, he started he started as a at at Compact Computer as a programmer. And then he broke and then he broke into Wall Street as an investment banking analyst. I met him there. And mm -hmm. then he moved. So he started as an analyst covering computers because he came out of Compact Computer. And then as the internet emerged, he he moved and he actually had to move investment banks to a different bank, to Deutsche Bank, where they would let him be the head analyst for the internet. And then he was the analyst on the Amazon.com IPO. And that made everybody look at him. I mean, you think about the, your own narrative for your own personal brand. That branded him as the guy that understands marketplaces, right? Yeah. And so even though he started in computing, he moved himself over such that then he got, he became a partner at Benchmark and he has, you know, he's the one that ba backed Uber. He's backed all of these marketplace companies. He's made an entire career and $7 billion off of that, but he moved himself strategically over. And I have another friend that was an investment banker who, um, she was an investment banker and mostly an analyst covering, covering disk drives and, you know, things that, things that don't really do that well in the stock market. And so as a board director, she then moved herself from being a board director on disk drive and hardware companies to hardware software companies. And now she's completely moved over to software. So there's like this real strategic element to deciding where you work and where you want to get positioned. Um, and then breaking out. So you build equity, but you want to build equity in the right places. And then you break out. Breaking out is building your own company, building your own fund company. And Bill Gurley obviously didn't even need to do that to make $7 billion. But if you want to make the really big bucks, you've got to be a very successful founder, either of your own fund or your own company, like Bill Gates, like Elon Musk. And that's yeah. the path to a hundred million and more. Well, yeah, I 
I certainly can see that. You know, I can tell you that I've been on the entrepreneurial path full time for uh, going on 20 years at this point, actually. Well, actually, the 18th anniversary is coming up quite shortly here. But I'll, I'll tell you that what, you know, it's like a roller coaster. And whether times are good or times are not so good, the thing that keeps me going either way is the prospect of sitting in a cubicle. Yeah, that is true. That <laughs> is true. I know that I know um, that's a far cry from a hundred million dollars here. So but what sometimes you... sometimes that's the entry fee. Yeah. Um, because investment banking and management consulting are two of the best routes for younger people to get into the five careers I talk about. And there are plenty more careers that can take you to a hundred million, right? Entertainment, a whole bunch of different careers. These are just the ones that I know. And so I only wanted to write about the ones that I know, but for those you need to put in your time a couple of years, except startups, but the rest you need to put in a couple of years um, at, in an investment bank or a couple of years in a management consulting firm. And that is going to be quite quite a lot of hours at a cubicle. And so there, the key is, how are you using those hours? How are you maximizing the leverage of those hours? So I describe something like, you know, you've got two junior people that have joined an investment bank and they have to do the same thing, which is you have to create slide decks to promote the companies that they're taking on the road to go through an IPO or something like that, an initial public offering. Um, one just makes the decks and improves it, improves it, makes copies, and then goes on the road with management, hands out the decks, and is just kind of like going through the motions. The other gets the names of every single CEO that they happen to interact with and every single senior banker that they happen to react interact with. And maybe it's not kosher right at that moment to, you know, grab their business card or something, but you, you'll know what their name is. And then you can start following them on LinkedIn, connect with them on LinkedIn. And then you make your own CRM, which is a customer relationship management, but you can have a personal one, um, which tells you when to reach out to someone, when to, and so you can reach out to them on LinkedIn and maybe have a reminder to reach out to them maybe every six months or once a year or something like that. And you start building your network. So even if you have to be in a cubicle, you can leverage that time to really improve your prospects going forward. Yeah. So basically, uh, fill your days with pointless staff meetings that should have been an email, and uh, and make and make absolutely sure that you uh, engage in twenty three different uh, manufactured niceties in every email you send. Well, well, I don't know that I would <laughs> recommend that. <laughs> I, but but even if you have to do all that, take the try to try to make the best of it. Okay. Well, yeah, I see that. So I not only am I the host of this show, I'm also your number one listener. So I have questions here. And here's a big one that's coming to mind right now that I think that some other folks who are seeing this topic, who have listened to us this far, maybe at a certain point in their business trajectory, their career trajectory, and they may be thinking, well, I'm not 16 years old anymore. And I don't have time to dig for soda pop cans. Uh, is it too late for me? Well, it really depends. Yeah, yeah. The, the aluminum cans. Well, the aluminum cans are not paying twenty five cents a can anymore. Yeah. Um, but uh, so there's that, and it it really depends on how old you are because really the biggest thing is math, right? And how yeah. how long do you have to compound that money? That's why I really focus on having a couple million by the time you're 30. And no, that's not easy, but that's what my mentees have done. And, mm -hmm. um, and then that allows you to compound it. But sure, there are plenty of examples of people in their 40s and 50s who finally made it big, right? They've, you've, so especially in the startup world, if you have a you know have one startup that makes it big and you have enough equity you, you can do it at any on almost any age if you look at one of the most 
one of the most famous ones was Colonel Sanders um, of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. And a, a lot of people, you know, he, he really got going with Kentucky Fried Chicken at age 40, but he figured out the franchise idea more towards age 60. And so he died with $3 million, which is great considering he started out destitute, but you know, he just didn't have the time to compound it. So the answer is kind of going to be a little bit nebulous. Like it depends, but you know, I have seen like, I've, I've seen, I mean, you could see it. It's publicly, it's publicly available information. Um, the CFO and CEO of Snowflake made both of them made a billion dollars when that company went public just on the IPO yeah. of just their shares in that company. So, you know, if you're in the right place at the right time, but they were both billionaires before that, <laughs> they yeah. just made an additional billion dollars in the one day of the IPO. So, um, you know, but you can, I do see other people that are building extraordinary companies and, and they're in their sixties and they may end up reaching that hundred million, but the older you are, the lower the chance. I guess that makes a lot of sense since we since a lot of this comes from compound interest Absolutely. and compounding uh what about multiple streams of income is there a way to leverage the strategy like that to sort of accelerate and try and get there anyway absolutely so one of the things that i talk about in my book is that you know there there's a way to create a money flywheel um now i think you may be talking about multiple streams of income in a different way but this is the way that i think about it which is if you say you start up a company and it becomes successful and you become known for being able to ramp a company from 50 million in revenues to half a billion in revenues or something like that. Now, both other board directors as well as venture capitalists may want you for your network and also your operational expertise. So you may become a partner in a VC firm and they may let you, a lot of these VC firms, if you're already established as a founder, they may let you be a partner without being full-time. And so now you're making money as as a partner, you're getting carry in the firm. So you're getting part of the firm's profits as a venture capital firm. You're also still either at your startup or starting a new one. And you will get invited onto boards of companies where other where com the companies say at 50 million and they want to grow to half a billion because you've already been there, done that, and you can show and advise them how to do that. All of a sudden, you're getting equity for the boards that you're on. And, you know, but those management, of course, you go to the board meetings, but those management teams are doing the heavy lifting and doing the hard work to grow that company off of your advice. And you're getting all the benefit of the growth in that equity and then you're getting the growth in the equity of all the companies the venture capital firm has invested in because you have you have a percentage of profits and then you're still growing your own company that you're running yeah that's a little bit different than i was thinking of in terms of uh multiple streams of income because i was uh i was thinking about uh owning and operating multiple businesses yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the same thing, right? Yeah. You're just, you're in those three. It's just that my book focused on those, on those three businesses, those, well, five, five industries, but there's a neat thing with venture capital startup and board director that you can do all three at the same time and they feed into each other. Yeah. So overall, what do you think is one of the biggest mistakes that people make uh, when they miss making that hundred million? Early on, they don't take enough risk. Okay. So early on, you you know, and you've got to moonshot your career. You've got, I mean, like when we first started talking, it's like, wow, 100 million sounds like a lot. And then I'm like, well, you know, Bill Gurley made 7 billion, Bill Gates 110. There's 25,000, you know, people worth, households worth over 100 million that are self-made. I mean, it's, it's not unreasonable. And so, so one of the things I say is, too many people, and I did this too, I set my goals too low. I said, I want to run the number one fund in the world and I want to be a Grand Prix dressage rider, which is, you know, horseback riding, but I wanted to be really good at that. And I over, I did better than both of those. And so, um, and then I 
was kind of like lax, you know, I was kind of listless. I didn't have any direction because I didn't have anything to shoot for. And I've seen this time and time again, people do better than their goals. And so set your set your goals, set your goals huge, make them a huge moonshot. In um, in the 1960s, President Kenny, JFK, gave this incredible speech about we, we are going to send Americans to the moon. And when he gave that speech, he had no idea what the technologies were going to be. He had no idea how we were going to get there. We didn't have the capacity to go there. And what it did is it spurred the greatest decade of technological innovation that the U.S. had ever seen. And so it's the same thing. You want to have these massive, massive goals at the beginning. Take risks, but obviously understand you're never getting back your time. So really research the companies that you're going to join. But take risk, take risk, make bets and make that career goal huge. And then you can have you can have milestones that are reachable so you don't get depressed that it's too far away, et cetera, but have a huge goal. So that's a mistake people make at the beginning. They don't take big enough risk and they don't have a huge goal. And then kind of in that area of 30 to 50, if they've if they've taken like for me, I made one boss a hundred million, I made another boss 24 million. But for me, I didn't build my own equity. I I broke in and then I just kept doing the same job. So what I call the second phase is you've got to keep the gas on. You can't think, okay, now I've made it. I'm run, I've run the number one fund in the world. Well, they you know they paid me like hundred and fifty thousand dollars to run the number one fund in the world, and I made my boss twenty four million because he put money in the fund. So yeah. I didn't I didn't build equity, and so so that's like. At the beginning, take big risks, have big dreams. And then kind of once you've broken in and you've done that and it's working, then you've got to really keep the gas on. Start joining boards. Start, you know, like figure out how to reinvest your money. You've got to compound that money once you get it. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of Elon Musk, who keeps coming up in our conversation, I remember last year when he was beginning to make noise about acquiring twitter morgan stanley told him that they estimated the value of twitter should be between 50 and 60 dollars per share for takeover and elon told them uh make it have 420 in it they said got you bro so he offered to buy 100 percent of twitter for 54 dollars and 20 cents per share in cash okay <laughs> that's a joke yeah yeah make, yeah, yeah. make, make sure it has 420 in now he also said more seriously to stop being patient and start asking yourself, how do I accomplish my 10 years plan in six months? You'll probably fail, but you'll be a lot further ahead of the person who simply accepted it was going to take 10 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. And one of my favorite, and he's totally right. One of my favorite stories is Peter Thiel versus Mark Andreessen. Yeah. And. Peter Thiel is very successful billionaire, as is Mark Andreessen. But Peter Thiel, it's brilliant, and so he went to he went and you know got into investment banking, and then he went to Stanford Business School, and then he went to Stanford Law School, and you know he had all of this background, and then founded PayPal, kind of nine years in, right? Which yeah. was an incredible, successful thing, and he's a billionaire. Mark Andreessen. IPO'd Netscape two and a half years out of graduating college. And what Peter yeah. Thiel has said is like, I mean, and he has a whole fund that, you know, he has a Thiel fellowship where he pays people to, to, to drop out of college to pursue their dreams because, you know, he's, he's like, wow, I just wasted nine years. Andreessen just jumped the gun and was, you know, had 80 million from AOL buying, buying Netscape, right? And so um, that's the thing is, and Elon's absolutely right. Like you don't have to go step by step. There are, of course, I write in my book, there are paths, there are ways to do this, but you should, I also write that you you need to kind of keep your head down and work really hard, but recognize the signs and the signals of when you need to look up and see that there's a bridge to 
a different path to a faster freeway and you don't need to necessarily follow the common path that everybody follows. Yeah, I could not agree with that um, anymore if you gave me $100 million to express a, a stronger level of agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be great if I, we just had $100 million bills? Although that sounds like we would have some really rapid inflation if you and I had $100 million bills. Yeah, you know, and some of these 100 millionaires are like crazy. I mean, uh, I, I mean, Elon, for example, uh, some people think he's a whack job. Well, I he's don't, a hundred billionaire. Don't. He's a hundred billionaire. So okay. maybe maybe that's a different personality. I don't I don't think I don't think he is at all. In fact, I love the I love that he doesn't I, I mean he might I think he might own a mansion somewhere as a real estate holding, but he lives in this like forty five thousand dollar house by SpaceX. That's his official residence. And he has little apartments in the headquarters of each of his companies so whatever companies he's spending all of his time on at that given moment he'll just hunker down there i i i thought i saw something a year or so ago that he was selling all his real estate he has actually sold off a lot of real estate he used to own several homes and he sold a lot of them off because he just doesn't see him being the type of guy who's going to sit on sit and rock on the front porch he doesn't need it yeah yeah so I, I look at that and I say, cool, because I, I personally have no mansion needs. I I recently moved from one apartment to another and I picked a smaller one because I just wanted less maintenance. I wasn't I wasn't yeah. I was I wasn't put here to maintain a place. Now, at the same time, I also don't have a wife and I don't have kids right now. But if that changes, yeah, we're probably going to get something where it's big enough so that each kid has their own room plus three guest rooms and two home offices. But that's a completely different scenario than where I'm in right now. One of my biggest values in terms of how I live my life is portability. Hey, I don't I don't like the neighborhood. I pick up and go. And my, that's a totally my, different yeah. type of wealth and success. Yeah, my worst case scenario is I got to wait out the lease or I got to reach into my pocket and pay a break fee. That's my worst case scenario if I get stuck somewhere. And I have uh, and I felt this way since this happened about, I don't know, 10 years ago. A friend of mine had received a job offer in Colorado and she ended up losing out on the job opportunity because she couldn't sell her. She couldn't sell her house in Connecticut. Oh, wow. So I looked at that. I'm thinking, oh, 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 oh. maybe it'll be different. Uh, when I have a wife and kids, but for now, uh, if something comes up in Colorado, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just go to my landlord. Uh, yeah. How much for that break free and just uh, break out some hundred dollar bills, say peace, here are the keys and leave. Yeah. Yeah. It's such, it's, it's so key. It's so key to have that, to have that freedom. And you can see, um, I, what I call it with, what I see with some, some wealthy people is they become a prisoner to their assets. And that is something yeah. that Elon has not done. Right. Bill Gates famously drove that was, was it a Ford Festiva or a Ford Escort or something. He drove some little basic economy Ford for how many years? Yeah. He, yeah. He, 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 uh, all he needed was a car to get to and from the office. He was at, he was at the office most of his life and we wasn't at the office. He was home. He didn't need a, uh, he didn't need a, a Bugatti to do that. Yeah. But, but he does have a lot of real estate. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And a lot of farmland too, which is another thing that, um, another thing for folks to uh, pay attention to, you know, years ago I had somebody on this show and I cannot remember the name, but I could research it. There, and they recommended two different ways to grow wealth. One of which was is to look at industrial or property zone for industry that were on patches of land that were separated from the road by somebody else's property, buy the property between the road and the industrial patch, and then lease it to the industrialists. So you make money just off them being able to get in and out of their factory. Another was billboards. They actually went the old school route and invested in billboards because there are still billboards around. Trust me, there are a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the great, it was a really lucky time, but um, back in actually a similar time to, to today where they were raising interest rates aggressively and different different industries were having trouble and the billboard industry really went into the 
the dump. Uh-huh. And um, and so I remember going with my dad and this was 1982. So this is when Volcker had rates at 20 percent. I mean, it was, or 1981. He had rates at like 20 percent at the high. And um, and, you know, the economy was in a terrible, terrible recession. Uh-huh. And we we went to this we went to this presentation about billboards and the net of it was you the government would give you full tax rebates to invest in these billboards like it's so you let's say you invest twenty thousand dollars you'd get a twenty thousand dollar tax deduction right so it's almost like you're investing for free but if the billboards worked out you had ownership in this billboard <laughs> so i was i said to myself wow that is a great investment i mean i was yeah. only at the at the time i was like 15 or 16 but i thought you know my dad would take me to these things which i'm really grateful that he did and i thought wow that is and and my dad put quite a bit of his money into it it worked out it worked really well actually the billboard company ended up doing really well so he made a lot of money on his equity as well as you know having not having to um you know having that tax shelter as well when i lived in pennsylvania i would travel across the state through philadelphia and go to new jersey to visit my best friend when i was driving back from new jersey crossing that bridge that spans the border between pennsylvania and new jersey as you as I you know that bridge it goes way up and then comes down on the other side as you're coming down on the other side for years there was this bulletin board and all it said on it was I hate Steven Singer funny that's it I hate Steven Singer so I did some internet research and I found out who's Steven Singer and why do people hate him turns out he's a jeweler Oh, really? Yeah, he uh, he put up a billboard that said, I hate Steven Singer. And he has and one of his websites is I hate Steven Singer dot com. It's oh, a way. So of, it's a way everybody. Of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah people it, get yeah, curious curiosity. about who he is. Yeah. So oh, that's this, clever. Yeah. So from his website, here's the story about uh, where I hate Steven Singer came from. It, it I'll, and I'll read it. It all started more than 20 years ago when a guy proposed to his girlfriend with a gorgeous diamond engagement ring he brought from Steven Singer Jewelers. Naturally, she said yes. 20 years later, he buys her another Steven Singer diamond ring to celebrate their 20th anniversary. She was so excited, she gave her husband an even better present right back. Wink, wink. Exactly nine months later, the couple walks through the door to show Steven their new baby. The wife proclaimed, I love Steven Singer. The man responded, here we go again. We're up all night with feedings and diaper changes. I hate Steven Singer. So there you go. And that's the story of why men hate Steven Singer and why women love him and his beautiful diamonds. Oh, that's great. I love it. <laughs> what a great story. I mean, I mean how, how, how entertaining is that? So uh, he's married to the woman for 20 years. And you figure after 20 years, they probably already had two or three kids who were probably getting pretty close to college and because he went and bought this 20th anniversary ring uh now the guy's probably about 45 years old he's got to do it all over again he hates he hates this guy like how could you do this to me oh yeah yeah how funny yeah but do you hear the one there's uh there was my my stepmother was a uh internist in beverly hills and she told me the story of a guy who was an OBGYN. And he liked, you know, his day-to-day being an OBGYN, but he hated getting called at two in the morning to deliver a baby. And, yeah. you know, he just, he wanted his kind of like the nine to five, the the, the thing, thing us entrepreneurs don't want. He wanted that. And yeah. so um, he just wanted to go into the, you know, go into his office, do his, do his thing, you know, do the, do the exams, et cetera. And and be done with it and not have be woken up in the middle of the night. Yeah. So he makes sense. Made his fees for delivering babies double what anybody else charged just yeah. to make sure, you know, that people got the message like he's not delivering. Ba- but of course, it's Beverly Hills. So yeah. people assume he must be absolutely the best. If I'm living and in so Beverly Hills, I want the guy who charges 10 times as yeah. much because so I want yeah, for bragging rights. Out. Yeah. Yeah, be, yeah, because I mean, how, how much does it cost an OBGYN to uh, do a house call to deliver a baby? Uh, do you know? No idea. But, but let, he let's, basically let, let, he let's, researched let's, it let's to make it, sure he was double yeah. the highest. The next highest, he was double that. 
Now, let's say, let's just throw out a number, and I have no foundation for this, and if there are any OBGYNs listening to this, they'll probably laugh at me. Let's just say $3,000. All right, if I'm that guy, I'm charging $30,000 for 2 a.m. deliveries. And, and, I, probably, and I and I bet you I would get, get the money. Completely booked out. Yeah, I would. I, mean, I, that... I would get the money because that's Beverly Hills, and people want to be able to say we have a Bugatti in the driveway. Our OBGYN is thirty thousand dollars, and I have two private jets. Yeah, we have the, nothing but the best <laughs> for our child, right? And so yeah. he ended up like having almost no time to even do his office stuff because all he was delivering babies like day and night. And no matter how much he tried, they just kept wanting him to deliver the babies. Yeah. Well, and, and, and this actually goes back to even fund management. So there was a, there was a time where there, uh, there was a guy that, that my boss and I knew and, um, and, and he had had a, you know, a couple of bad years and, his investors weren't happy. So he closed down his fund and he, cause it, you have to kind of get back to the level that you were at before it's called right. a high watermark. And yeah. so rather than do that, he just closed the fund, which is, you know, kind of uncool, but, and so then he was going to open a new fund and he called my boss and he said, well, what do you think? I don't know how I'm going to raise money. Cause everybody knows I lost so much money in the last fund. And, um, and my boss says, well, just tell them that the funds closed to new investors. And the guy said, but I don't even have any investors yet. He said, I know, I know. Just tell people that it's closed to new investors, except like a few select friends, but otherwise it's closed to new investors. Yeah. And, um, and he did that and it got completely sold out and he made $400 million that next year. Personally. Oh, son of a gun! I'm taking down. I'm taking down the Reach Systems website. Uh, you can't. You can't. You can't. Or, you can't order a podcast for me anymore. That's right. That's exclusive. That's right. Well, and and uh, and not to take a, a macabre turn on this, but that's kind of how Bernie Madoff made his money as well. It was the exclusivity of his fund, and we know it wasn't really a fund. We know he was just dropping the money in a bank account. We know that now. But the reason people would fork over everything they had to him is because. They could only even get into it by his invitation. So you, you you could not ask him to be in a fund. If you asked him, it was an automatic no. You only got in if he approached you and invited you. That was it. And if you ever decided to leave the fund, you couldn't come back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy how people are driven by FOMO. And, you know, you can use it to effectively raise for a startup and, uh, or you can use it for bad. Yeah. I mean, there's many, many great startups run their fundraise in a very successful way, you know, using some FOMO so that you can get that raise done in a short amount of time and then build the company the rest of the time. So many people use that FOMO in a, in a good way for, for good, but a lot of people use it in the negative way. I think just about anything can be done for either good or bad, depending on how you choose to approach it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, and, th- and think about it. And we see this on all sides of the political spectrum here in this country. People who keep supporting the same candidate over and over again, who's repeatedly demonstrated that they can't even get elected dog catcher, much less governor, president, senator, what have you. Uh, but they'll keep supporting him because this time they're going to pull it off. And I don't want to be the one who missed it when I'm, when history was finally made. Yeah. So true. Yeah. So true. I mean, it's FOMO. People celebrate failure almost. I mean, it's uh, it's amazing. Yeah. But then again, uh, what I learned very early in marketing is it matters not so much what people say they want. It matters not so much what people think they want is it does what they'll respond to in a way that gets you the answer you're looking for. Yep. Absolutely true. Yeah. So, um, so as we, um, as we, um, close up here uh we're near the end i guess i just have um i guess i just have one more question for you uh if somebody who's listening to this right now who's going to take up on the invitation i'm going to share with them in just a moment were to decide to maybe go buy your book 100 million dollar careers maybe visit you your website i'm going to give the link to that in a moment and ask, what is the first thing that I could do right now 
to get myself on the path toward a hundred million dollars. Maybe, maybe I don't know if I'll make it, but I'm going to do that moonshot because I'm going to try for the hundred million dollars. I probably won't make it, but I'll make a lot more money than the person who just assumed it was impossible. So the first thing that I would recommend you do is read my chapter two, which talks about building a healthy foundation. And I know this sounds crazy, but going for a hundred million takes a lot of stamina. So you've got to be eating right. You've got to be exercising and you've got to be building that network and leveraging your network. And so that my chapter two in my book talks about how to do those three things. And that builds your a very strong foundation so that you will have the stamina and the endurance to go for the hundred million. Great, 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 great. So let me uh, share the invitation with our audience right now. If you visit Emmy's website at emmysobieski.com, and I'm going to spell that for those of you who are out right now driving and don't have a billboard that says, I hate Emmy Sobieski to look at right now and get curious about. So it's E-M-M-Y-S-O-B-I-S-O, no, excuse me, E-M-M-Y-S-O-B-I-E-S-K-I.com. And what's really cool about that is you'll see that $100 million career calculator right on the first page. So you can enter your liquidity amounts, uh, the years you're looking for, the rate of return, and it'll show you how close you can get to that $100 million from where you are right now. And it can begin to spur your thinking about how you could moonshot it, go for it, and be that person who may not make $100 million, but maybe makes tens of millions of dollars because you did, you tried rather than just assumed that you couldn't do it at all. And for some folks, $50 million would be three generations of wealth. So go check that out. And of course, uh, go look up Emmy's book. It's called $100 Million Careers. And I'm going to pick up a copy of that myself. And with that, Emmy Sobieski, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.